Um, we are going to pick up in chapter 7, so I know you're skipping ahead. Um, but this is where we'll begin to find uh, Jesus concluding or coming to the end of finishing up his Sermon on the Mount, that famous one that hopefully you've been uh, walking through. And as he does, he'll be picking up and speaking to um, some of those places in our humanity, or as Dallas Willard puts it, these tender places in us that are actually the places, the epicenter of our response to Jesus, both in what he has just said in the previous chapters and what he will say in the chapters to come. So, are you up for reading the text tonight? Great, me too. You don't really have a choice, so here we go. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Jesus uh, says this. He says, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Verse 6, do not give pigs, uh, do not give dogs what is sacred, and do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. The word of the Lord. Or all of us. Don't you think that's just the weirdest verse of all time? <laughs> it's such a weird inclusion in this teaching. But, um, but it won't be so weird. Uh, so Jesus starts us off here with the easy stuff, judgment, which is what I love to talk about because it has no place in my life at all. I'm one of those judgment-free kind of people, so it's a, it's a perfect opportunity for me to teach on this. Now remember that Jesus is teaching here, uh, speaking really to the Pharisees and the scribes of the day who would be um, the people who had a tendency to be legalistic. They were those who would, would be in the community, the people who would draw the really hard lines. Um, they were critics in the worst uh, sense of the word, and they would be moral guardians of the day. They would be monitoring what you were doing well and what you weren't doing well and making it known to you and to other people. So obviously, Jesus needed to address judgment, but he did it not just to address the, the um, Pharisees and the scribes of the day, but also as a warning for those who were about to apprentice him or those who would become disciples of him and his teaching. So he's lumping it in into this famous sermon and giving us all the heads up. So we're gonna work through the text tonight line by line, and then I just have some things that might be helpful or might not, but either way, uh, this will end in about an hour. So, um, so we'll be fine, I'm just kidding. I actually have a clock this time, whereas last time I just kept talking because there was no concept of time or space. Uh, are you ready, verse one? Uh, do not judge or you too will be judged. Simple. I mean, it doesn't take a scholar to kind of figure out here what Jesus is after. However, if we're going to fully understand this text, um, we, we're going to have to define this term judge. Now, the definition in the Greek is pretty expansive, but if we boil it down, it means to make a distinction. So a judgment is a statement of something either being wrong or good, at least according to our text. Now, like I said, uh, Jesus' statement is pretty simple. Don't judge or you're going to be judged. But I'd hate for its simplicity to dilute its power and implication for us, the reader. This short sentence is one of the most vital commands in the Sermon on the Mount, particularly for the people of God, because it's through this command that people are either shaped by reconciliation or by condemnation. 
So it's here in this first statement that, that we, the reader, get a broader glimpse into what Jesus is after in this text. It's almost like this is his thesis statement for this section. He's saying, listen, this is kind of what I'm after here. And in that, and in this statement, he's also talking about and giving us a glimpse into the texture or the workings of the kingdom uh, of heaven, of what it means to interact with family and, and um, your neighbors and the people you work with and how judgment actually touches all of them. It's gonna touch all of us in this text with no exception, which is why this statement is so broad and all-encompassing. Verse two, you ready? For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Again, simple. Jesus is making this clear and driving it home. Uh, when we look at this verse, he's simply saying that we should accept this, uh, expect the same standards of judgment to be applied both to the judger and the one being judged. Meaning, uh, if the judgment we bring is marked by a harsh or graceless assuming posture, then we should accept the same kind of we should expect that the same kind of judgment would befall us. Dale Bruner, a, a scholar and theologian on the book of Matthew, says that this verse is one of the strongest arguments for sympathy in the scriptures, <laughs> which I think is funny, and I agree. Um, but I would also add it's an argument for checking yourself before you open your mouth to make a judgment about somebody, and that's my theological perspective on that. Um, Dale goes on in his commentary to say that the threat of God's judgment can often move us where appeals to God's love cannot. And uh, I know the statement is strong, but I believe it's conveying the heart of the warning behind this verse and what Jesus is after. It seems in this specific verse that Jesus is kind of pulling back the veil for those of us uh, who are listening and those of the day who would have been listening on our warped belief system of judgment, and that would have been that of the Pharisees or the scribes. It's this idea that those of us judging have a right or a freedom to do so, and that we'll be exonerated from judgment ourselves even though we're judging other people. And it's also this idea that if we show enough disapproval for the wayward person, then they'll actually respond and correct their actions based on our judgment. And Jesus is saying, that's absolutely ridiculous. And he's saying that if you have that mindset, it will always lead you to a place of judgment yourselves. This is your warning. Verse three and four. He says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Now here, Jesus is giving us an actual picture of what he's talking about in the verse above. And if this picture seems ridiculous, uh, it's because it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be comical. If it makes you laugh, if you think about somebody like me, apparently John Mark, our pastor at Bridgetown, uh, at some point taught this teaching, which was, would probably would have been helpful for me to hear um, anyway, when I was writing mine, but I never heard it and I never saw it. So anyway, apparently he brought a two by four on stage and put it in front of his eyeball at one point when he was teaching. So just imagine how funny that would be. And he was like, I can't see because the, anyway, that, that's why I didn't do it here, but you could see how ridiculous it is. It's supposed to be obvious and blatantly humiliating and silly because that's how sin is so often in our life when we're coming to judge somebody else. It's what Dale Bruner calls the, calls the law of critical gravity. It's this idea that as humans, um, particularly humans who follow Jesus, 
we have a propensity to look to the faults and failures of others and overvalue their faults and failures. We emphasize them and find them very easily when we look to them, while at the same time undervaluing our own faults and failures. And we do that. And he says this is what Jesus is speaking to here in this verse. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we shouldn't have high standards of behavior for ourselves or other people, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what he is talking about is the temptation to look at each other or to judge one another as failures. And he's saying that that in and of itself is a temptation for us to play God. And so he makes it clear that when we assume this posture of God in another person's life, there will be a revealing of the way we have sinned and our need of mercy too. The point here isn't that we have worse sins than other people or that we're to measure those sins, but that we have sins as well, and that we, as people who are following the teachings of Jesus, should live under the reality of that, especially as we begin to move to make a judgment of another person. Verse five, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here Jesus tells us how to avoid that powerful indictment of being called a hypocrite if you're a Christian or a follower of Jesus. You know that this is often a term that gets lumped into our camp, because we are. So that's embarrassing and we should fix that and work on it, but Jesus here is like, hey, let's figure out how to not do that. And if you'll remember from hopefully previous teachings that you've had before, this idea of hypocrite, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, is um, this image that comes up for us as someone who wears a mask, or in today's day and age, it's someone who would be living a lie. And he's, here he's Jesus saying, in order to not be hypocritical, hypocritical, and in that, losing all credibility with the people you're speaking to, one should clean up their own act before they look to other people. Simple as that. He says, then, after you've examined yourself and after you've dealt with your own sin, you'll be able to see clear enough to not take the posture of God, but in mercy, actually seek to help the other person who has the speck in their eye. Bonhoeffer puts it this way, he says, when I judge, I am blind to my own evil and to the grace granted the other person. Um, the best way I can describe it in my own terms, not in uh, John Mark's terms, is this. I have this bag my mom made me. It's this um, huge leather bag, and I, um, I put my, like, so many things in it. There's, like, today, like, I just expect this, the straps are going to break at any point, but I have, like, my computer and, like, three books and two, two adult sippy cup things and you know, other things, and so it's constantly heavy, so much so that if I ever see a massage therapist, they're always like, your right side, and I'm like, I know, it's my back, it's my purse. And maybe you women understand, maybe dudes, I don't know, you, maybe you carry a satchel or a man purse or whatever. Um, so I carry this bag, but at the bottom of my bag, for some reason, there always ends up being food, you know, like at the bottom, like I had like um, crackers at the bottom, like saltine crackers smushed up and at the bottom of my bag recently. So I pulled my computer out and out came saltine crackers. And this might be why I don't have a boyfriend. I'm not sure, <laughs> I have no idea. But it was like this really weird. And then so recently, I've had a lot of Sour Patch Kids in my purse because I've been traveling. It's the only food I eat when I travel. So um, anyway, so it's like this. It's like, and I throw my glasses, by the way, I, sunglasses, I do like the $12 ones. Any other ladies with me because you just get them smashed anyway and whatever. So I just throw them in my purse. So occasionally I'll pull my glasses up and they have saltines on them. Or in a recent case, Sour Patch Kid, sour and sticky on them. Do you know? That's probably grossing some people out. But anyway, this is my life, and it's time to confess these things to you. So when I put my glasses on, 
you know, this is what Jesus is after. He's saying, like, I can put my glasses on, and if there's just a few of the sugars and whatever else is on there, I'm not going to be able to see clearly because it's smudgy and gross. Make sense? But sometimes, on the rare occasion, there's actually, like, the arm of the Sour Patch Kid stuck to the actual lens of my glass. Do you know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen a Sour Patch Kid? Okay, Mike has. This guy's eating them, I mean, really, a lot. Um, I know that. So anyway, occasionally I'll put them on, and there's a Sour Patch piece there, which means that when I'm looking at my glasses, I'm actually seeing something that's not there. Makes sense. So oftentimes, when there's crap in our own life, when there's undealt with sin, this is what Jesus is saying, that we have the propensity, even when we're moving to judge someone or to help correct them or whatever, we'll actually see something in them that's not there. And that's what Jesus is saying. Until those, those lenses are cleaned, which you'll remember tomorrow, by the way. Ridiculous, but you'll remember. And you won't touch my purse, probably. <laughs> um, we, we can't actually speak to life of the person. So, so that's what Jesus is getting at here. He's saying that the heartbeat for a disciple of Jesus should be that we're committed to living godly, cleaned up, blameless lives, working towards holiness as individuals and as God's people. But that on that journey, as we move towards even correcting another person, there should be mutual sanctification and growth present. And if there's not, then we have to actually question what's taking place. And if we're actually freed up to, to, to speak into the life of another person. Now, we're gonna go to verse six, and then I promise I have some helpful things to say. This is that weird verse, so prepare yourself emotionally. Remember that? Uh, do not give dogs what is sacred, okay, and do not throw your pearls to pigs, never. And if you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Oh, what a blessing. <laughs> now, this is a metaphor if you were wondering, so some of you are like really thankful. And some scholars believe this is uh, a part of the text that is to be read independent from the last part. Um, however, there are other scholars who believe this isn't. This is something that's to be read together uh, with this first part of the text. So there's a few ways to understand this. Uh, some would say that Jesus is giving an example of what happens when we play God with others. And when we uh, push those things of God onto them, whether they're ready for them or not. Others still would say this is a text saying that as disciples of Jesus, we are to treasure and to guard the message of the kingdom as something sacred and beautiful and something to be treasured and valued. And both, in my really brilliant opinion, are right. Uh, as we look at the text, first notice the use of uh, the terms dogs and pigs. These two examples are the way that Jesus made a distinction between those in the community of Jesus and those who are outside of it. And Jesus obviously isn't suggesting that certain classes of people are to be viewed as dogs or pigs. He isn't saying that we shouldn't give or do good deeds to those outside of the community of Jesus, even those who might reject or misuse them. I think more correctly, he's highlighting a problem, and he's saying that when we reference holy things like the meaning and the message of the kingdom for people who are outside of the community of Jesus, it's often not helpful. Now, this is not a discourse against evangelism at all, by any stretch of the imagination. So if you were like, good, because door to door is like, and I, I know, I did all of that from a very young age, but I mean, it's not terrible. Some of you are like, I got saved. Anyway, don't write me an email. I know it was really meaningful. And it's good. Um, but this isn't a discourse against evangelism. He's not saying we don't share the message of the kingdom, but be wise 
about how and when you share it. And of course, this isn't an issue of whether people are worthy, don't hear me wrong, to hear the message or to receive these things. This is a question about stewardship and when it's actually helpful for individuals to hear the message of the kingdom. So this then is a, is a, a picture that Jesus is speaking to, and in that he's saying more about our efforts as disciples of Jesus to correct and control others by giving good things as opposed to sharing the gospel. He's saying oftentimes we like to help people along. Do you know those people? Maybe it's your mom or dad. They like to help you along spiritually, so they're dropping the, I don't know, the precious moments things in your laps or whatever. You're just like, Mom, I found this weird devotional for teenagers. I'm 22. I don't. She's like, No, it's good. It was. I don't know. You know, those kind of things where we help people along when it's actually not helpful, or when we speak holy talk to people who don't hear it or understand it. He's saying. That's not actually helpful. So what do we do with our desire to help? Well, N.T. Wright says, uh, what matters in our approach to people is not just what we do, but how we do it and when. And we can count on it that a superior attitude or condemnation will never help us out. And so that's the warning for us here. Just as we were warned that we're not to make judgments before dealing with our own self, that that would move us to a posture of humility. So in this verse, we read that we're to be in a posture of humility before we offer the things of the kingdom to people who may or may not be ready to receive it. Are you with me? Yeah. So in so many words, be mindful of when and how you do it. And above all, beware as disciples of Jesus of the temptation to be superior, even if it's small or subtle in your approach. I do this all the time. I have it, and uh, you know, I'm Southern, so I have this like built-in chip in me that makes me judgmental just all the time. It's just, and I'm working it out. I'm trying to get it out or whatever, but there's a superiority even in the faith camp that sneaks in so often where I'm like, why did you say that? You don't need to say this or that, make you sound like this. There's these ridiculous moments, even when I'm trying to bring someone to the kingdom of God that I'm willing to put forth to make myself feel better. To what end? And this is what Jesus is calling out. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've read the scriptures at some level, you should be thinking, maybe, if if you're awake, um, you'll be thinking that there's a little bit of a tension in this text that's unavoidable for us. Um, And it's paradoxical in nature, meaning that the message or the ask of Jesus here would seem to contradict itself against other teachings we find in the scriptures. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know that, that throughout the scriptures as a whole, there are commands that encourage us as Jesus people to prophetically evaluate sins, particularly for the people in the community of faith, and to respond. And as disciples of Jesus, there is a call or a set-apartness that does give us an authority to speak into the lives of those around us. Um, So, what Jesus is teaching here for us isn't as simple or one-dimensional as we have found over and over again with the Sermon on the Mount as we would hope. So if we're gonna understand this, we have to press into this idea of judgment a little bit further. Um, When we talk about judgment, there's this distinction, particularly here in this text that I need to make, and this distinction is between judgment and correction. Did you hear me? Great. So in the history of of Christianity, or in our faith, these two terms have become very blurred, a little bit enmeshed, and a little bit confusing. Now Christianity, as many of us have known it, has had within itself a culture that breeds suspicion a lot of times, and has a propensity to lean towards judgment. 
And in that, we've had a tendency to make some things central that in fact are not central, and to decentralize the things that need to be our focus. And so I think it's that distortion at some level that has led us and often continues to lead us to a place of judgment. And this shows up in various forms, and this is not the platform I'm trying to open up here <laughs> because Josh is your pastor, so he would love to talk to you more about it. Um, but you know, whether someone drinks or whether they don't drink or the type of music that they listen to or their political leanings or whatever, we get caught up in things that often are not the main thing and it leads us to places of judgment and a heart posture that doesn't really reflect the kingdom. Now judgment, I would argue, is when we call out perceived evil or wrongdoing in another person without actually loving them. It's when we draw attention to someone else's wrong just to draw attention to someone else's wrong. And it's when we actually make a declaration about that person's identity based on that, not their actions. And it's rooted always, just so you know, in selfish and self-righteous motives, and it always produces shame in another person. And it deals in absolutes, which is really disappointing, which means it leaves no room for grace, or for an argument, or for a conversation. Now there's no doubt that anyone in this room would argue that judgment is powerful, and that it cuts to the vulnerable parts of who we are, um, whether we would admit that on a certain day or not. And that's why that, um, it is actually rare that someone, if ever, is changed by the judgment they experience from another person, even though we weirdly believe that it does something. Dallas Willard puts it this way. He says, when we condemn another, we really communicate that he or she is in some deep and possible irredeemable way bad, bad as discards of human life, that he or she is not acceptable and we sentence that person to exclusion. Now maybe um, you haven't stopped or you didn't think over your Christmas break or whatever the holiday season about judgment like some of us did. And, um, that's a joke, uh, maybe uh, you never wrestled with the implications of judgment. Maybe it's not something that comes up at your dinner table. Maybe you just, you know, you hear it and whatever. Um, and if, if you have kind of dismissed it in your life, it's not been something at the front of your uh, mind, uh, I wouldn't blame you because it's really easy um, to do. In our culture, judgment is readily available. It's the mask that we use all the time inside and outside of the church, and it's the license that many of us use to not have to be in relationship with that specific person. Um, it's the defense that many of us use to not have to associate with people who are different than us. It is a currency in our culture, culture that we exchange, and in so it has become, I believe, one of the greatest weapons of the enemy, particularly in the church. Because the thing about judgment is it's subtle. I mean, sometimes you're like, trust me, my aunt was not subtle at Christmas time. Okay, well, sometimes it's not that subtle, but it's subtle in its effects. It's an assault on someone, and oftentimes it's a silent killer. It comes in all shapes and forms, and it's often blanketed and bookended with nicisms that help people feel like, help us, the judges, not feel like we're hurting people as bad as we are. So, you know, in the South, we just say, bless her heart. You know, she's really gained some weight, bless her heart, you know, or whatever. She looks terrible in that, and I would never wear it. Bless, I mean, bless her. Bless that baby. Um, or whatever, and that's how it works, right? That's how I was insulted my whole life and confused sometimes. You know, I was like, bless me because I'm, what, what's happening or whatever. And, and the Northwest has it too. It's a lot of like, I was just joking. 
That was just a joke. Don't be so sensitive about that. Or whatever, when we, we cover up and bookend our judgment, trying to explain it away at some level or dismiss it when actually it's made a greater impact than we're willing to admit. Judgment is one of the greatest dividers of relationship there is, and it has the power to tear down in a moment what was built over a lifetime, and that tearing down is often by what's perceived, not what's actually known. It can infest a heart and mind in such a way that it, it destroys an entire belief system about oneself or about something else. And it's judgment that keeps all of us from seeing ourselves as we really are. It's judgment that keeps us from seeing each other as we actually are as God sees us. So when Jesus says don't judge, his command is hard. It's not small. Um, and it's a warning beautifully, this is how he does it in his kindness, that covers both the one being judged and the judger. But there's still that problem I mentioned that we need to work through if we're actually Bible people. What do we do when we read some, something like Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says, we are to judge sinful believers? Or when a friend of ours is in sin and in clear bondage to sin, and we believe that their actions will lead them to a death, whether that be physical or spiritual or emotional. When we look at our text, the temptation for those of us who are lazy and scared um, would be to reason that judgment means we don't think or discern. But that's not what Jesus is saying at all. He's not asking us to surrender the practice of distinguishing and discerning how things are in order to avoid judgment. He's showing us how, to tr how we are to train ourselves to hold people responsible without attacking their worth as human beings or making them feel rejected. The heart here is that the disciples' ethics should transcend judgmentalism and pursue holiness and reconciliation for the other. Now, the annoying thing is that people are not perfect. Ugh. And um, it means that correction is going to be needed. I mean, that's just, at least in the name of my game and in the job that I do, correction happens often. I was just home um, with my whole family. My brother and sister both have kids, and my brother has um, two redheads and, um, and one boy. And, um, and the, the girls are redhead. And I realized how vital correction is. In our time together, we spent a week in a house together, and when correction wasn't happening, honeybee, which is what they call me, was correcting. You know, spent a lot of time in correction. People are not perfect, specifically small humans, and just bless you parents who are doing that all the time. Um, you know, scripture's clear. There are times when correction's needed, when we do need to give an answer, when we do um, need to correct even public things that are taking place. And correction, I think, is when we call out wrong in another while loving the person, while always working for their absolute best. And correction, in its dichotomy against judgment, is rooted in grace and mercy and always, always, always seeks to restore the other back to the path of discipleship. It's always working to restore and to reconcile, to build up and to add to and it's in correction that we often know God's thoughts, but we lead with his heart. Um, the only way I can distinctively draw this image out for you um, is when I think about judgment, I think I'm confronted oftentimes with whatever the terrible thing is that I don't like, right? When I see someone and they're doing something dumb, I'm constantly fixated on the dumb thing, 
And I'm just like, what kind of person? You know, that's, that's what I sound like when I'm judging someone, so just listen for it when you're around me. Um, but when, when I'm actually correcting someone, I actually hate it. That's how you know the difference. I hate to correct someone. If you're a parent, I'm sure you, even what Josh was alluding to with Beck, it's, I hate correct, I don't like it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to have to say like, hey, this is kind of terrible. And you, you know, someone, anyway, brought in a drink earlier, it looked like a beer, and I was like, oh crap, I'm going to have to pull this person aside and be like, you can't have beer at our basics class. This is kind of, but thankfully it wasn't beer. Anyway, I said, next time you should put it in a different cup. That's what I said. That was my correction. But it's like that, right? That's how you know the difference. Correction actually sees the person and sees what will be and what is to come. It's not distracted by the offense, it's looking right at the offender. <laughs> and that's the distinction between the two. Correction is the tool that God uses, uh, uses to transform us and to correct us as disciples of Jesus. It's a regular part of life. And having the truth of our shortcomings brought to the surface for us to deal with should be normal for us. It's why we're in community. It is essential if we're gonna be shaped to look like Jesus. All throughout the scriptures we're told that wise people, people who are highly intelligent and full of knowledge are people who receive correction, who, who heed the counsel of being corrected and change and, and step into that path of discipleship in a better way, in a, in a more linear way. And there's this crown of glory, if you will, for those who receive correction. And I am with you, I don't really like it at the time. Correction's never really pleasant. Um, but the thing that I know about it is it's, it's got the potential to yield fruit that will last a lifetime, that could change actually the trajectory of somebody's life. And if you've been around long enough in the kingdom, you know that that's probably been the reality for you and for other people that you've loved. Now, there's one more layer to this teaching I wanna address, particularly in our cultural moment. You know, we live in a um, only God can judge me kind of time. Do you know what I'm talking about, Tupac? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna try this one. Now, for the younger crowd, only Judy can judge me. See, I know that's so terrible, and I told these younger people that was, t anyway, that was the feedback someone gave me. Do the only Judy, they'll know. I'm like, who's watching Judge Judy? I don't know. My grandfather loves it. He's home every day on whatever time it comes, he's just committed to it. He's like, don't you love her? I'm like, no, I don't really. So anyway. Only God can judge me, or you can't judge me, you don't know me. I mean, we live in that day and age, right? It's like all the hashtags or whatever. And it's everywhere, it's from college campuses to celebrities, it's whoever. And as much as we don't want others to judge us, the pain of being judged doesn't seem to be enough to stop us from perpetuating the self-destructive narrative of our culture that says, judge or be judged. Don't judge me has been a battle cry for Christians, for a lot of us, who have no desire to be confronted about the things we know are wrong. And as often as um, confrontation has been abused in our culture, and it certainly has, do not get me wrong, it's also been avoided to justify behaviors. We live in a time where to disagree means to hate, and so this conversation is difficult to have, particularly for the disciple of Jesus, but the reality is if we are actually committed to following this rabbi, if we have come and died, which has been the ask from the very beginning, then I think for the disciple of Jesus, without taking on the shame that judgment brings, 
that we should be able to hold the disagreement or the correction or the rebuke, and by doing so, it can actually make us more like Jesus. That there's wisdom to be gained in the correction that we gather, the correction that we receive, and even if it's hard, we have to put off this old narrative that says, you can't judge me. And and you're right, God will judge you and be accountable, but in the kingdom of heaven, judgment or correction here is actually working for your good. It's not coming against you, and this is where we're provocative. This is where we're the prophetic witness in culture and doing something better, doing something different. Now, if we're gonna actually try to do that, if we're gonna move to a place where I think actually demands that we live in a posture of humility, if we're gonna live between the tension of culture saying Nobody's gonna, nobody should judge you and in the kingdom things should be held responsible and you should be accountable and sometimes you will need to be corrected, then, then we're gonna have to embrace a humility and a posture that is not comfortable for us to do so. And in that, the way that I think has been the easiest way for me to begin to do that, because I've been working on judgment all year, <clears throat> That's a joke, because it's only, yeah, she's with me. Yeah, she got it. Yeah, it's only one of you, but thank you. Thank you. How are you with me? It was a joke. I actually was working on it last year, but I just thought I'd bring it into this year, because, you know, we're still working on it. Um, But if we're going to do that, I think we actually, if I'm going to do that, I need to understand, um, I need to understand what's actually taking place, both in the judger and the one judging. So I did a little research, and I'd like to share that with you. Um, Psychologists say that we usually judge, um, Uh, for a couple reasons, so I'm going to tell you those, and then I just want you to think about yourself. Okay. Um, We usually judge when we're feeling insecure. Um, So when we're insecure or when we're unhappy with who we are, um, we often try to put other people down. That's a natural response in us. And though it actually doesn't work to put someone down and feel better about ourselves, that's not actually what happens. We do it anyway because we want to feel good by making other people feel bad. And that's a a tendency that we have in our insecurity. Now, sometimes this manifests as shame or self-judgment, and sometimes it's vocalized by us. Um, Other times you'll see it in situations um, where people isolate themselves, you know, when they're insecure, and then they begin to, like, remove themselves, and then we're assessing and judging all of that, or we're separate from the group that's hanging out and doing the thing, but we're judging what they're doing, you know? I used to do this, well, I, I'm sure I've done it recently too, but you know, when you feel like you're the one being left out, and there's insecurity about why you're being left out, then you start to hate everybody and all the groups that are having fun and having a better time than you without you. Okay, just me, but I do that, and um, yeah. Um, next, we do it when we're scared. Um, when we're intimidated by people, um, we often put them down. So coworkers will do this um, often, when they're talking about their boss, they're kind of making fun of them or judging them, right? I don't do that, but um, other people do. Or when two women, not to call the sisters, but when we see a prettier woman who's a threat in the room, um, we make fun of her outfit or her hair. And that's actually something that we do when we're intimidated. That's like the best way I can put it. Um, when, we, when we're scared, we just want to put other people down because we want to feel like we have some kind of worth, voice, or value. And it's a natural response in us. And this also happens a lot of times, you've seen it, you can see it specifically in the race conversation, when you fear difference, 
When you fear something that's different from you that you don't understand, a lot of times judgment builds in that space or place too because there's a fear of not knowing what's happening, not understanding who it is that you're in the room with. Make sense? Great. So scared. Next, another fun one, lonely. So when you're lonely, (laughs) we have a tendency to judge. And as odd as it can sound, um, when you're lonely, you use or you can use um, judgments uh, to connect or bond with people. And even though that's a negative um, thing, your judgments are negative, it's a way for you to feel like you're actually connected to another person. And if you're like, man, that sounds really sad. Um, It's true, and it happens to me. It's happened to me. You know, when I'm in a lonely space or whatever, I'll start to judge people just simply by a way of being connected to them, especially if I'm feeling disconnected and I want to be connected to them. I'll find myself making judgments that make me feel more a part of what's happening in their world. Um, Finally, uh, when we're seeking change, and this is kind of the obvious one, um, when we want our lives to be different than they are, we're quick to judge others and their lives. For example, if you want to be, if someone wants to be in a committed relationship and her friend gets engaged, she might whisper, oh, that guy is not right for her. He's so gross. Um, I don't know why they're getting married. Um, they might say that. Someone might say that, let's just say, for example. And, um, and they'll start making judgments about this other person and about the spouse that they're choosing. It's often when we're jealous that's what that means, that we begin to make judgments of other people. So I know these can feel general and a bit generic for us in the room, but if you think about your day-to-day interaction with yourself and with other people, these things actually start to stick. And when you're tempted to judge, a lot of times this is what's happening within you. Now the terrible thing is, is when we judge another person, we um, not only end up hurting that other person, but we hurt ourselves as well. And um, so I love this. The fact that Jesus is asking us not to judge is not just for the good of the other person, but it's for us. Psychologists say that when you judge someone, you usually feel worse about yourself. That it never actually produces the response that you're looking for. They say that it affects the emotional environment of your life. And for those of us who follow Jesus, it actually quenches the Holy Spirit's presence in our life. For those of us who hate this idea of perpetuating stereotypes or being at least stereotyped by other people, um, it's noted that judgment perpetuates stereotypes of every kind. That that is the running force behind these continued places and spaces that we see the worst of judgment manifest. And that when we judge someone, we're actually encouraging harsh judgment on ourselves. Now, um, I, am a, I have been a, a judgmental person by nature. There's some stuff in my family and just culture and all that stuff, but this is the one that hit me the hardest because it's actually truth. Because I know that as critical as I am on other people, I am twice, if not 10 times, more critical on myself. So I'm not saying your hair looks a mess without thinking about how my hair is ridiculous, how it's not doing the thing that I want it to do, how I don't like it, how I don't blah, blah, blah. 10 other things that compare to your one. And psychologists say that as we continue this discipline of judging other people, because don't get me wrong, it's a practice, it's something we've instituted in our life, we will continue to do the same thing internally in us. It's like like when the scriptures say, like out of your mouth comes the things that are in your heart. 
That's what he's saying here. These things are actually connected. That the judgment you're spewing onto other people has already taken place in you. There's judgment in you that you are doing and turning towards yourself. And Jesus in his mercy is speaking to it here, which is just mind-blowing to me. Okay, so how do we do this? How do we, how do we respond to this teaching the right way? How do we step into what Jesus is saying, we examine ourselves, how do we do all of that? How should we respond to what he's asking us? And the first thing I would say, which you'll never ever hear at church again, particularly here, is focus on yourself. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is get the speck out of your own eye. Deal with your crap. Look at your stuff, your insecurities. Look at those spaces and places in you that are lonely and are hurting and are seeking change. That's where you start if you're like, no, I'm fine. I've already, I did the Josh thing at the beginning and I listened to the Holy Spirit. It's more than that. It's, it's the search me and know me, God, before I even begin to move towards another person. Why am I drawn to this thing that I'm judging in their life? What is it about that thing that resonates with me so deeply? You know, you've heard it said that the thing that annoys you about the other person is the thing that's true about you. Ugh. I just like don't believe that's totally true. I'm just choosing, I'm not there in my spiritual life yet, but, um, but it's kind of like that, right? It's examining yourself, looking at why it bothers you so deeply, and make sure it's not connected to some wound that you have. That's where it leads us to places of judgment and harsh words and things we wouldn't normally offer. If someone reminds you of your mom and that's the person you're judging and your mom hurt you the most, don't you think there's a connection there? There's things to search in us that Jesus is calling us to look at here in order for us to be faithful with this text and what he's asking us to do. And by the way, that protects us and the other person. There's wisdom and kindness in it if we'll just accept it. Second, take captive your thoughts. Just as Paul's told us to do over and over again, take captive your thoughts and hold them up to Jesus and say, does this honor you and does it honor this person? And honestly, does it honor me too? Is this honoring as a whole? And if it's not, get rid of it. Uh, third, look for the good and believe the best. This is our mandate in scripture. If we are called to love people, which Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, you've all heard it at the weddings, wah, wah. and not, I mean, read it. That's very nice at your wedding. Maybe I'll do it too when I get married. Um, but it's this idea of constantly believing the best, not looking for the worst. So if someone disappoints me, my ambition as a disciple of Jesus is to assume the best to assume that there were some situations or scenarios that led them to the place that they were, to act the way that they did, and I'm supposed to believe the best and be full of grace towards them. That's my natural disposition, right? It's what it's supposed to be. It's to believe the best about another, and that's our job through and through. Yeah, but I saw them do that. Believing the best of the situation until you know the facts and you know it's true. That's the mark of maturity, by the way, in the kingdom. Um, the fourth Fifth, fourth, stop judging yourself. Get out of the discipline of judging yourself. When you begin to do that, take captive those thoughts and make it obedient to Christ. Stop looking at yourself and criticizing everything you have said or done. Some of you will go home tonight, much like I normally would if I wasn't putting this into practice, and think about all the dumb things that you said in front of a lot of people today. And you'll run those things over and over again and think, my goodness, Jesus, why would you ever pick me to do anything like this? This is so ridiculous. And we have that same conversation that we've had a thousand times. But I'm putting a stop to that. I'm saying, Jesus, what do you want me to know about me? And about what happened today? And about what I offered you in my smallness and in my weakness? 
And it's retraining yourself to stop judging yourself. And then, and then finally, remember how it feels. I mean, that's like a simple, normal human thing to do, but remember how it feels when you're judged by another. And all of us know at some level the pain of that, of having someone assume something about us that's not even remotely true, and yet feeling like you have no power to speak the truth to them anyway because they're not actually willing to hear you. That is a powerless sensation. It's something that's extraordinarily painful. Um, I'm just going to end with this. Um, I, as I've been thinking about this teaching, and I went home um, from Florida and Georgia. I went to both places for Christmas, and of course it was really fun, and um, also family, and um, it was good. And I, in the midst of all the craziness, got to go home to my home church. And if you don't know, um, and some of you are like, we know. Um, My mom left our family when I was a teenager, and my dad's a pastor, so it was a really big deal, and this church was really big. We were like 3,000 people at the time, and so we had to step down from ministry, and it was really embarrassing and humiliating. Anyway, so um, I went back to my home church while I was in Florida and um, saw some people that I had grown up with, and you know, some of those older women, I'm like, Miss Barbara, it's me, you know? And she's like, Miss Barbara's not there anymore, so um, bless her heart. And, uh, and I mean that, actually. <laughs> uh, And I was struck by something um, really profound when I was there. You know, at that season, when all that went down, particularly in the South, particularly in a Southern Baptist church, particularly in our whole situation, there could have been a lot of judgment thrown at my family, like a ton. And I'm, you know, I have all that. I'm working it through with, with Jesus. But one thing I was struck by, when I went back into the church, I mean, seeing people from a million years ago. You know what I mean? I'm like, I remember when my parents married you like 20 years, I mean, weird crap. My Sunday school teachers like, I remember, I'm like, you're still alive? Like, weird experiences and I loved it. It was so healing. But I was struck. I left that space so full and struck with the reality that these people love me. I mean, they just love me. And I was thinking about this teaching and thinking about judgment and how it blinds us to see the actual person. And if they had just assumed that I was what my family was, if they had judged and assessed who I was based on our circumstances and our, our scenario at the time, then I would have no space in their life. And when I came back, they wouldn't see me. They would see what they had seen before. But the reality is these people saw me from the get-go. That 15 years, when this, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when this happened, they chose to see us, to love us, moving beyond what they could have judged and assessed, and to see us as people. That's why I could go back and have this great welcome reception. And I mean, there was not a real reception, but they took me to lunch, then that was a big deal. And, and just snuggled by every old woman on the you know, white diamonds everywhere, the smell all over my clothes. And, uh, and I mean, it was healing for me because that was what was actually taking place. That's what had actually taken place. It was for the first time in my life as a grown-up, I could put all that together. The call for us as Jesus people is to do that, is to see people, not see the thing that we want to judge and assess and in ourselves and in what all these people had to have been at some level examining themselves and going like, we're not so far from this stuff. We're not so far from the thing that happened and learning to love and to step in by grace and caring for us as the community of Jesus as real and as authentically as they could.